to go to Isaiah chapter number 9 in the Scriptures this morning. Isaiah chapter number 9, and have a special message prepared for you this morning from this wonderful prophecy uh, from the book of Isaiah. So Isaiah chapter number 9, one of the most beloved prophecies about the Messiah, about Jesus coming into the world in all of the Scripture. Isaiah uh, chapter number 9 is where we'll be at in just a moment. We'll read the Scripture um, give everybody a chance to, to get set and ready to go for this time in God's Word uh, this morning. Glad you all made it out this morning. I didn't really do a good job of announcing that we were still doing this service uh, after we had to cancel because of the weather last week. So I was praying that somebody would show up, so I'm glad you all are here. Um, and uh, that's a good thing there. Isaiah chapter 9. You know, Christmas time is the season... Obviously, that we as Christians celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, and that's what makes this season special to us. Uh, but all over this world, there are people who celebrate this season without the foggiest idea of why they celebrate this season. For many of them, it's just tradition. For many of them, it's just a day off of work. Um, and this, it's, it's nothing more than that for many people when it, you really consider why they're celebrating this season. Some people would say their reason for celebrating this season is because they can get together with family. Um, they can sleep in. I mean, I've heard all kinds of things that people try to say about this season. And this world really doesn't understand what this season is really all about. And uh, many of them, they might know about Jesus. They might uh, have an understanding growing up in American culture. I'd say there's hardly a, hardly a person, and at least it used to be this way, that doesn't at least know uh, that, that uh, Christians believe that Christ was born on uh, this Christmas day. And I think that uh, many people understand that in their heads, but they don't understand in their hearts the true significance of that truth right there. And I read the story recently about a woman who... Uh, as it read, she walked by a church and she saw a nativity scene at a church. And the preacher overheard her saying, well, you just look at that. The church always tries to, tries to drag Jesus into everything. We laugh at that about that as Christians. because Obviously, uh, Jesus is what Christ, Christ must. It's, it's all about Christ. And we understand that, but we're living in a world that really doesn't understand that fact right there. And uh, the fact is, the, the world, I think we could say it this way, the world, what, how the world views the Christmas story, uh, the fact that Jesus Christ was born in a manger and, and, and grew to eventually die for our sins, what they think of when they think about that story of a little baby being born in a manger, they think of it as a fairy tale. It's just like Santa Claus and Rudolph and Frosty. And it's sad that we're coming into a post-Christian culture where there are, and make no mistake about it, you can just turn on the news and you can come to this conclusion yourself, but uh, there are so many people in our culture today that, that look at this truth that we celebrate as nothing more than a fairy tale. And so while all the world around us may progressively be forgetting what this season is all about, we as God's people absolutely must not forget or neglect to take the time to consciously remember the truth that we celebrate during this season. And so I, I want to take you to this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9 that was given, it was given nearly 700 years before Jesus Christ was even born into this world. And I believe as we look to this prophecy from the Scripture that we can learn some things about 
who it is that we truly celebrate during this season. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse number 6, and let's read it together. Let's read it out loud together, verse number 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. I'll read verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. From Isaiah chapter 9, this wonderful prophecy all about Jesus Christ. Although he was not known as Jesus at this point in history, he was known as Messiah but they, they, this prophecy was given, and it describes to us some wonderful truth about the Lord Jesus. And I think it's a great reminder for us as, as believers for who it is that we're supposed to be celebrating this season and what it is we're supposed to be celebrating about him as we think about him. And so I want to bring out three prophetic truths here from Isaiah chapter number 9 that, that remind us who and what it is that we celebrate this season. And before we dig into these truths and these verses, let's pray and ask God to speak to our hearts this morning. Father, we come before you and we ask that you would speak in a way that only you can today. And I pray, God, you'd open up our, our minds to the truth of your word, but more importantly, our hearts to allow you to uh, minister to the, the, the deeper needs in our souls. And I pray that as we are reminded of the fact that you came and how you came and who you are, that our hearts should be filled with the, the glory and praise and wonder that filled the hearts of shepherds and wise men and, and people all over the world when you came over 2,000 years ago. And I pray we'd be reminded, and so much so, that this reminder would spill over into us being able to share uh, this glorious news with those who are around us. And I pray, God, you'd speak through me and speak into our hearts in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Now, three prophetic truths from the scriptures here uh, from Isaiah chapter 9 that tell us uh, why, who, what it is that we celebrate during this season. Number one, if you want to write this down, we celebrate a person, Jesus, because he is marvelous in how he came. We celebrate the fact that Jesus is marvelous in how he came. The manner in which our Lord Jesus entered into this world was nothing short of miraculous and marvelous. First Timothy 3.16, it tells us, and without controversy, there's no debate about this, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified of the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. But the Bible tells us at the beginning of that verse, the mystery of godliness is that God was made known, was manifest in the flesh. And this is a truth that has, has brought uh, the heart of believers to wonder for centuries now. The fact that God would come in the flesh. I'll say this to you, this truth is so important that it is one of what we would call the fundamentals of the faith. A person cannot believe, be a Christian truly if they don't believe that Jesus Christ as the Son of God himself has come in the flesh. He's not a man that became God. He was God who became a man to die for our sins. This is a fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith. It's so important for us to understand. And as we think about the, the, the wonder, the significance of, of what we celebrate this season, we find that Jesus is marvelous in how he came. 
And two things about how he came we learn from the scripture here. First, he came in earthly humanity. He came in earthly humanity. You look at verse number 6 of Isaiah chapter 7. The prophet Isaiah foretold that the Messiah, who would come as a human child. The first phrase of verse 6 says, For unto us a child is born. Now the Christ child, who was born in Bethlehem, was 100% man. That's an important thing for us to understand. Unto us a child is born. The Bible gives so much evidence to the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became a man. He was wrapped in flesh. I think of Philippians chapter 2 and verse 7, it says that Jesus Christ made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. And let me tell you why it's significant we understand that Jesus, God's son, came in the flesh as a man. The first reason that's significant is because, Jesus, because the fact Jesus Christ came as a man, he was able to die for the sins of the world and to save us from our sins. That's the only way that you and I could ever be saved. The Bible says in Romans 5, 19, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Now that's Adam, the first man. Even so, by the obedience of one man shall many be made righteous. One man threw us into the condemnation of sin, and there was one man who came. He was the God-man, Jesus, who made it possible for us to be delivered from our sins. That's why it's significant that he came as a man, the perfect sacrifice for sin. Another reason it's significant he came as a man to, uh, to this world is because, hey, Jesus Christ, as a man, he experienced the same temptations and, and troubles and heartaches that you and I face in this life, which made him a suitable high priest to be able to give us a complete and full salvation. That's what we learned about in the book of Hebrews as we studied it earlier this year. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, it says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, and yet without sin. There are so many doctrinal, biblical reasons behind why it's significant that Jesus Christ came in the flesh to be a sacrifice for our sin, to, to act as our high priest, the only perfect and great high priest that mankind has ever known and will ever know. That's why it's significant that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. But I tell you, for you and I, the most significant reason Jesus Christ has come, into the, come in the flesh is indicated in our text. The Bible says there again, verse 6, for unto us, that word, that phrase unto us in the Hebrew, it gives the literal connotation of, 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 of being for us, something being done on our behalf. And we understand, because the Bible makes this clear and in in, in later on in the New Testament, that the reason Jesus Christ came was for us, to save us. The angel announced when he pronounced the coming birth of Jesus to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 and verse number 21, uh, he told her, uh, he told Joseph, and she shall bring forth a child and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus came to save us. Jesus said, I'm come to seek and to save that which was lost. And I tell you, the most significant reason for me that Jesus Christ has come, into, come in the flesh is that he came in the flesh to save me from my sin. And so we worship him. It is marvelous to consider how Jesus Christ came into this world. He came in earthly humanity. 
But not only did he come in earthly humanity, but I find this as well. He came in heavenly deity. He came in heavenly deity. Go on back to our text in verse 6. Isaiah went on to say, after he said, For unto us a child is born. Read the next phrase with me. Unto us a son is given. Now, the particular use of words we need to recognize here. Because he starts off by saying uh, that, uh, unto us a child is born, and then he, then he follows it up by saying, unto us a son is given. He didn't say, unto us a child is born, um, unto us a son is born. But it says a son is given. This is significance there. Listen, don't miss this. Jesus' existence didn't begin in Bethlehem's manger. A child was born that day, but a son was given that day. And there is a significance between those things. The Bible says in Colossians that Jesus is before all things, and by him all things consist. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and then we beheld his glory, even as the glory of the only begotten of the Son. Jesus Christ did not begin to exist on, in Bethlehem's manger. He had always existed. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus Christ entered down into this world. And so what we learn from the scripture is not just that Jesus Christ is 100% God, but Jesus Christ is one, or not, not only is he 100% man, but he's 100% God. It's a coexistent, miraculous thing. That we consider when we look at Jesus Christ. You think about the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on the mount. And he pulled back the veil of his flesh and revealed his glory. Jesus never ceased to be God. Even while he was 100% man. I don't understand that. That's a, that's a mystery to you and I, but the fact is, that's what the Scripture teaches us here today and all throughout the Bible. We're reminded of the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. God even revealed it to Mary. When he began to tell Mary about the fact Jesus was coming into this world, the angel told her in Luke 1.35, he said to Mary, that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Now this is a mystery. I like what R.G. Lee, the great preacher from yesteryear, said about this. He said, Jesus is the only one born with no earthly father but an earthly mother. He had no heavenly mother, but he had a heavenly father. And so he was older than his mother, and yet as old as his father. <laughs> now that's an interesting dynamic there, but that's Jesus. And I tell you, one of the reasons we worship him is because he is marvelous in how he came into this world. I like the, the, the group, the Inspirations. It's an old Southern Gospel group. They're still around today. New, new people in the group, but the song they used to sing, The Wonder of Wonders, Oh, How Could It Be? That God became flesh and was given for me. The Almighty came down and dwelt among men. And the wonder of wonders, he died for my sin. It's a marvelous thing to consider that God would come to be with men. And then you think of the word that encapsulates this whole thing into one, into one name. What's the name of Jesus that tells us about this? Anybody know? Emmanuel. Emmanuel, it means God with us. I'm so glad God came to be with us. And I tell you, the, be the beautiful fact is, God came to be with us so that God could be delivered up for us, so that God could come to dwell in us. That's why Jesus came. And Jesus, 
His desire through Christmas is not just to make a Bethlehem somewhere over in the Middle East, not just to dwell in a place called Bethlehem somewhere over in the Middle East, but he wants to make a Bethlehem out of each one of our hearts. And that's a marvelous thing, that God would not just come down to dwell on this earth, but now, because of Jesus' finished work, God would come to dwell in our hearts. And that is a marvelous mystery, and what a blessing that is. And so the first prophetic truth we learn uh, from here in Isaiah chapter number 9 is that Jesus is marvelous in how he came. But I want you to note the second one down. Not only is he marvelous in how he came, but I want you to note down secondly, Jesus is majestic in who he is. He is majestic in who he is. The Bible goes on to tell us uh, Isaiah describing this Messiah in verse 6. He said, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. I enjoyed last year uh, the choir sang and Ethan sang the lead on the song. Um, his uh, song about about this truth right here. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And we look at these names, and if you don't really understand what they're communicating, you'll miss the significance of what's being described about Jesus Christ here in the Scripture. And oh, how important it is we understand who Jesus is. Uh, the preacher Jerry Vines, he's still around today. Jerry Vines calls this prophecy the greatest single verse in all of Scripture about the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, that puts it into context there. And uh, that's, uh, there's so much Scripture that tells us about, uh, about the Lord Jesus. He said this is the greatest single piece of Scripture that describes for us who Jesus Christ is. And we understand that there's a lot of significance and titles that are given to people. Well, some people, a title means nothing. But, uh, uh, you know, I bear a lot of titles in my life, and so do you. I'm, I'm a Christian. I love that title. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a pastor. I'm a friend. I'm a son. I'm a brother. And I could go on down the line and talk about those things. And all of those names bear special significance and bear special description uh, telling other people about who I am. And uh, when we look at these descriptions given about Jesus Christ, they ought to fill our hearts with the understanding and knowledge of who Jesus Christ is for you and I. And so let's consider these names that are given to Jesus here. First of all, we see the word wonderful. Isaiah said his name shall be called wonderful. And I wrote down about this. Jesus is a wonderful God who summons my contemplation. You think about Bethlehem, when Jesus was born, when the news of his birth, and when when Mary and the shepherds and the wise men came, what was one word that popped up a lot around that whole experience for them? Wonder. Everybody who heard about their experience, they wondered about the things that they were told about. And our hearts are still filled with wonder today when we consider this amazing one that came for us, Jesus Christ. Now in our vernacular today, this word wonderful, um, we, we use it about everything. Uh, how was your day? Oh, it was wonderful. It was a horrible day, but you say it was wonderful, okay? We almost use it as a common, commonplace thing. But here's something to note about the Scripture. Not one time in the Scripture is the word wonderful used to describe anyone or anything but God. God is the only one who truly is wonderful. 
His name is called Wonderful. That means he's extraordinary. He's hard to understand. He's not like anybody else. That's what's indicated from the name Wonderful here. And if we truly understood who Jesus is, our heart would indeed be filled with this wonder when we consider how wonderful he really is. And boy, we could take a lot of time today to just, just, just describe some things about Jesus that make him so wonderful. One of the things that makes Jesus wonderful to us here today is, is his love. His love is wonderful. Um, isn't the love of Jesus something wonderful, wonderful it is to me? We sing about it. But the wonder is about it. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That love that he was willing to come and die for our sins. And this was manifested the love of God and that Jesus Christ came and died for our sins. The Bible says in another place. And boy, we see that love on display and we love him because he first loved us. His love causes us to be filled with wonder. His love is wonderful. I think about his grace. His grace is wonderful. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. His grace was manifested in that he gave us something we don't deserve and can never earn, and that was himself. Now, by grace, we're saved through faith. That not of ourselves is a gift of God. Not of our works, lest any man should boast. His grace is wonderful. Hey, his power is wonderful. That's been a good reminder for me this year. He's the God of the impossible. For nothing shall be impossible with God. Jesus said, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And his power is wonderful today. I think about what the scripture says in Ephesians 3.20. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think. According to his power that works in us. And that's just three aspects of God. We could, we could take years, and we will take years, I believe, in heaven one day just to discover all the, the, the mystery of the richness that is to be found in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the fact of the matter is, when we look at Jesus Christ, his name is wonderful. We sing that song. His name is wonderful. His name is wonderful. Jesus, my Lord, he is the mighty king, master of everything. His name is wonderful, Jesus, my Lord. There's a reason we sing those songs. He, his name shall be called Wonderful. And so first we see here today, he is a, a wonderful God who summons my contemplation. Here's the second thing you can note down about how majestic he is. He is a wise counselor who solves my confusion. He is a wise counselor who solves my confusion. You look there at verse 6 again. The Bible tells us after it says his name shall be called wonderful, what's the next word? Counselor. Well, Jerry's got it. All right, I don't know where the rest of y'all are at, but Jerry's got it. All right, His name shall be called counselor. He's a wise counselor who solves all my confusion. And I'll tell you what, there's a lot of confusing things that we go through in life. But I'm glad that the Bible tells us that he is the counselor. And this name tells us that Jesus is the one from whom we can always seek advice. Now, we live in a day today where uh, getting counseling, going to a psychiatrist, going to a therapist is almost the first thing that people recommend. Uh, even in Christian circles, 
I've seen people who their marriage starts to fall apart and they say, well, you need to go see a therapist. You need to go see a psychiatrist. You need to go see a, a secular counselor and have them help you sort all your issues out. And I'm not saying there isn't a role for some of those things, but what a shame it is uh, that we oftentimes turn to the counsel of men before we turn to the one who in the scripture here is called the counselor. It has been said that a counselor is someone who will help you organize your hang-ups so that you can be unhappy more efficiently. <laughs> I, think, uh, I think there's probably some truth to that right there, okay? The fact is, uh, even as well-intentioned as a counselor or a therapist or a psychiatrist may be in what they're doing, they will never be able to give you perfect counsel because our hearts are flawed as human beings, and we're easily deceived by our own sinfulness. And that's a, that's a fact that we cannot escape. You remember this. All of humanity were cast into the condemnation of sin because of some bad counsel. Remember the serpent in the Garden of Eden? Oh, no, you, you can eat of that fruit. God just doesn't want you to be like he is. It's, you won't die if you eat of that fruit. And they all, then the whole world was cast into sin. You know, instead of listening to bad counsel, it'd be a whole lot better for us to learn to listen to the counselor. That's Jesus. His name shall be called the counselor. And I'll tell you what, if there's anybody whose counsel we can depend on, it's the Lord. Let me give you some scripture. Psalm 33 and verse 11 says, The counsel of the Lord standeth forever. The thoughts of his heart to all generations. Proverbs 19.21, there are many devices in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord shall stand forever. I think it's important we remember that God is omniscient. He knows everything. He already, he already knows how your problem needs to be solved. He, he already knew you were, you were going to be in this problem before you were even born. And he knows the answer to whatever it is you're facing in life. And people say, well, the Bible doesn't really talk about all the specific areas of life, and so I just kind of follow what it does tell me to do, and then in the areas it doesn't say anything about, I just kind of make my own decisions about that. Can I tell you, the Bible has principles for every decision you need to make in life. A principle for every decision. And I tell you, when you seek counsel, you ought to seek counsel from the Lord. And when you're seeking help from a human counselor, you should only go to a counselor who will give you counsel from God's word. Psalm chapter number one, it says, Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate Day and night, and he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, who bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. That's what is promised to you if you'll seek the counsel of God from his word. And instead of running to, to your self-help books and running all these things to try to have the world tell you how to solve all your problems, why don't you run to Jesus? He's wonderful. He's counselor. But a third thing Isaiah went on to tell us about Jesus, he is, his name shall be called, and what's the next one there in verse 6? 
All right, we've got a couple more of you joining in here with us, all right? The mighty God. By the time we get to the fifth one, maybe everybody will be on board with us here. But his name shall be called the mighty God. And so we saw, first of all here, that he is a wonderful God who summons my contemplation. He is a wise counselor who solves my confusion. But I see thirdly here that he is a worthy defender who shelters me from conflict. He is a worthy defender who shelters me from conflict. He is the mighty God. I love that, that name for God in the scripture. That, that English uh, translation for mighty God, it comes from the, the Hebrew El Gabor. And here it literally means that he is the hero God or he is the warrior God. I love that description of God. I think God's my hero. I think that if there's any warrior that I'm going to trust myself behind, it's going to be God. And I'm glad that we have a hero God. I'm glad that we have a El Gabor, a warrior God, the mighty God here today. And I'm here to tell you something this morning. God has fought battles that the, that the children of men have not even thought about trying to face. The greatest battle, of course, that God fought was when Jesus Christ came down into this world. And he took on sin, and he took on hell, and he took on Satan, and he was crucified on a cross, and he rose again three days later victorious, and now the Bible says he has the keys of hell and death in his, in his hand, and he stands victorious over the greatest forces that oppose us in this world. That's our warrior God, and I don't care what problem you're facing today. I don't care what type of temptation that, that, that the wicked one may be throwing at you today, the one who conquers hell's grave, the one who conquered sin and death is well able to give you victory no matter what you're facing today. Romans chapter 8 tells us that we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. I love what it says also in 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 15. It says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? But thanks be to God which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is a warrior God. He is the mighty God today. And boy, in the things that we're facing in our country today, and our lives today, I'm glad that we can turn to a God who we know is well able to fight for us. Psalm 46 and verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And I'll, put, I'll, I'll cast my faith on the Lord in, in those circumstances of life that seem to be overwhelming me because he is the warrior God. He is the mighty God. And so we see he's wonderful. We see he's counselor. We see he's the mighty God. But here's the fourth name. The Bible says, fourthly, his name shall be called. And what is it? The everlasting father. Now, what do we learn here? <coughs> I'll say this. He is a watchful father who showers me with compassion. He's the everlasting father. He's a watchful father who showers me with compassion. That phrase, everlasting father, that name, it's uh, Adab in the Hebrew. And it speaks, uh, it literally means that he's the father of eternity. Or he's the, uh, the, the father forever and ever and ever. He is the everlasting father. He's not just limited to the context of time. He created time, but one day when time is no more, God will still be. When time was not in existence, God was still there. We can't comprehend that, but he is the father of all time. 
And we talk about father time like it's folklore. Well, here is the everlasting father. That's who God is. And uh, that's significant for us to understand right there. And so to be the father of eternity, one person said, is to have eternity. It's to rule in eternity. It's to be the Lord of eternity. And Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us here, is our eternal caretaker. He's the caretaker of eternity. Eternity is a place where he dwells. He dwells there even now while we're limited to the confines of time and our understanding and our scope. God still dwells eternal. That's who God is. I I can't even comprehend that. But that's who our God is. Several places in Scripture remind us of the eternal power of Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17 says, Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Hebrews 13, 8, familiar to many of us. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Um, Revelation 1.8, Jesus said, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Revelation 1.18 says, I am he, Jesus said, that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and death. That's Jesus. He's the eternal one. Now, it's interesting when we read this verse in Scripture, it's a prophecy about Messiah. A prophecy about Jesus, but they said that he was going to be called the everlasting Father. Well, Jesus is God the Son, but now he's being called the everlasting Father. Well, that's interesting. It seems like the Scripture is making a mistake here, except for the fact Jesus Christ himself later made very clear uh, this, this part of our doctrine here from the Scripture. John chapter number 10 and verse 30, Jesus put it simply this way. He said, I and my Father are one. And go to 1 John chapter 5 and, and verse number 8 or 7, I think, uh, it, it says, uh, there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. That's our God. He is a triunity, um, uh, three uh, independent Uh, parts that are all existing as one God, three different aspects of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three different ways God expresses himself to us in this world. And the fact is, Jesus Christ, who came in the flesh, is the everlasting Father. You make no mistake about that. And as God himself, Jesus Christ told us, I have the authority from on high to save any man who will trust in me. John chapter 17 and verse 2, Jesus prayed and said, As thou hast given me power over all flesh, that I should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given me. Jesus Christ is well able to save any soul that will come to him because he has the authority as the everlasting Father. But don't miss this. As everlasting Father, Jesus Christ as well. Hey. He's not just in charge of giving us salvation, but he's also in charge of giving us the sustainment we need for our everyday lives. I like what the scripture says in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 7. It says, cast all your care upon him because he cares for you. I have children, and I am very concerned about my children's well-being. I can't imagine a day when that would ever change. And like we studied several weeks ago from Psalm 103, like as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities us who fear him. God pities us as his children. I'm glad there's somebody greater than me that's looking out for me. I'm glad there's somebody 
greater than me who's providing for me. You say, well, I, I, I can keep a roof over in my head. I, I can keep food on my table. Friend, if it wasn't for the grace of your everlasting Father, you couldn't do a doggone thing. He's the one that cares for us. I'm glad I have a Father such as he. A Father that's not limited like I'm limited to this scope of time, but a, a Father who is the Father of all eternity. He's not just my Father for today. He's my Father for forever. That's a great truth. And so his name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor, the mighty God, the warrior God, the everlasting Father. And then what's the fifth name that's given to him here in the verse? His name shall be called the Prince of Peace. Hey, what do you know? We're all getting on board here, okay? His name shall be called the Prince of Peace. And here I will have you write this down. This is what the Lord spoke to my heart about him being the Prince of Peace. He is a warm-hearted comforter who soothes my conscience. He is a warm-hearted comforter who soothes my conscience. Isaiah called him the Prince of Peace. That's Sar Shalom in the Hebrew there. And it literally means he's the ruler of peace. He's the captain of peace. He's the only one who can bring true peace to any soul that is in this world. Now the world that Jesus originally created was a world at peace. There was no turmoil. There was no conflict. The reason why it was a world at peace is because it was a world that was untainted by sin. But when sin entered into the world because of man choosing to sin, there has not been peace in this world since that time. I like what I, how Isaiah chapter 57 and verse number 21 puts it. It says, There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. There is no peace to the wicked. And so long as this world dwells in wickedness, there will be no peace on this earth in that sense. There's no way we could find peace by... Uh, I don't care if there was a, a truce that every country in the world signed. Eventually someone would break it. And by the way, having peace doesn't, doesn't, has nothing to do with the uh, absence of war. There are many people, or we're not at war today um, in, in a grand sense in our country, uh, fighting with other nations. I understand there are small battles being fought uh, all over the world. We're not, we're not in World War II at this day and time. We're not at a, at, at a great conflict in that sense in this day and time. And yet, though that is the case all over this country, there is no peace. Because peace is not going to be found in such things. Peace can only be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ came into this world to bring peace. But as we discovered, I think it was last week, he didn't bring peace in the way we, that anybody thought he would bring peace. Jesus Christ came to bring peace in this world in a different way. See, this world wants peace um, uh, around us. Peace uh, between one another. But there's no way that you and I can have peace with one another until you and I both find our peace with God. That's the only way to find any type of peace in this world. And so Jesus, when he came into this world the first time, he didn't come to bring peace on earth in the sense of, a, of world peace. Jesus told us that he came to establish this peace within us first. He came to set up his kingdom first within our hearts and oh, how significant that is for us to understand right there. And so the peace that Jesus came to bring, it can only come through being restored to a right relationship with God. So long as the people of this world are at conflict with God, they can never be at peace with one another. But notice, Romans chapter 5 and verse number 1. Romans 5 and verse 1, it says, Therefore, being justified by faith, 
We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what happens. When I'm made right with God, not by my own merit, but through faith in Jesus Christ, and I believe in Jesus and his his finished work to pay for my sins and declare me righteous before God because of what he's done for me, and I believe in Jesus, I'm made right with God. When I'm made right with God through Jesus, I'm brought to a place of peace with God. And friend, when you get saved and you're made at peace with God, it changes the whole story. That's the, that's the key that unlocks the door to true peace in your life. I like how Adrian Rogers put it. He said, peace is a right relationship with God that leads to a right relationship with self that makes possible a right relationship with others. I'll say that again. Peace is a right relationship with God that leads to a right relationship with self that makes possible a right relationship with others. In other words, when I'm made right with God, and I understand what Jesus has done for me, I'm able to view myself the way God views me. And I'm able to become at peace with myself, not because I've got it all together, but because I know what God has done to make me righteous. When I come to peace with God and peace with myself and what Christ has done for me, then I'm able to become at peace with you. I don't have to fight with you. I don't have to seek your approval. I've got the approval I need from God. I can be at peace with you, listen, even if I disagree with you. Now, that's really hard. But that's the peace that Jesus Christ can bring to each one of our hearts. And oh, how important that is for us to understand. Another person put it this way. The peace that the Prince of Peace brings us is a, a, is a peace between God and man that brings a peace within man that leads to a peace between all men. I'll say that again. It's a peace between God and man that brings a peace within man that leads to a peace between all men. That's how Jesus Christ is the ruler of peace. And he executes this peace on, it, on this earth in the hearts of those who make him Lord of their life, in the hearts of those who believe in him. That's who that peace is shed abroad to. So Jesus, he's the reason we celebrate this season. He's the one that we look to uh, during this season. And he is marvelous in how he came. He is majestic in who he is. But the final thing I want you to notice this morning is that, is, is that he is mighty in what he will do. He is mighty in what he will do. Now, don't miss verse 7. Look at verse 7 with me. The Bible says, Isaiah went on to write of this coming Messiah, and he said, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, Advent. How many of you know what the word Advent means? Okay. It's, the word Advent speaks to us of, uh, of Jesus coming into this world. Um, you might look at some churches celebrating Advent. I don't often use the word Advent because I think a lot of people don't understand what it actually means. So I'd rather just tell you it's Jesus came into this world than tell you Advent because then you won't understand what I'm talking about. But uh, that's what we celebrate. What we're celebrating during Christmas is the first Advent. A lot of people get confused about the fact that there is going to be a second Advent. See, Jesus didn't just come into this world once. He's coming again. And a lot of times in interpreting the Scripture and reading the Scripture, we try to incorporate things that are going to happen at Jesus' second coming, his second advent, with things 
that happened during his first advent and vice versa. By the way, when Jesus came into this world, all of his people, the Jewish people, rejected him because they thought their Messiah was going to come and set up this eternal kingdom that's being spoken of in verse number 7 right then and there. He was going to make Israel the the superpower of the world again and establish a, a, a kingdom of which there would be no end. That's what they thought. And so the Bible tells us in John chapter 1 and verse 11 that Jesus came into his own, his own people, and they received him not. In fact, they're the ones that put him on a cross and crucified him. And that was all by God's sovereign design. You understand there's a difference between the first advent, when Jesus first came in Bethlehem's manger, and when Jesus Christ comes again. There are two advents that we understand the Bible teaches us about. At Jesus' first advent, he came to save the world from sin. But at his second advent, Jesus will be coming again to judge those in the world who have rejected him for their sin. That's why Jesus is coming again. And he will be setting up this eternal kingdom that is being spoken of and prophesied about here in verse number 7 of our text. And you know, Uh, I mentioned this earlier before, but Jesus himself made this clear. When he first came, at his first advent, one of the things he made clear is that he had not come to set up a physical kingdom yet, but a spiritual kingdom. And in fact, let me read you a verse, Luke chapter 17 and verse 21. Jesus said, neither shall they say, lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Jesus came to set up his his eternal kingdom in the hearts of those who would believe in him. Well, but one day, there'll be a second advent. One day, Jesus Christ is coming again. And when he comes again, he's going to come with those who have believed in him. And will be coming with him. Those of us that are still on this earth, we'll meet him in the clouds. And those who are already graduated to glory, they'll come with him from heaven. And the Bible teaches us that on that day, Jesus Christ will once again step down in bodily form on this earth once again, and he will establish a kingdom of which there will be no end, a physical kingdom on this earth. And what a day that's going to be. I love what the scripture says about this. Revelation 1 verse 7, Jesus said, Behold, I come with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, even so. So, amen. Later on in Revelation 17 and verse 14, the Bible tells us of how this is all going to transpire. It says that these, the nations of this world that are opposed to God, they shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they which are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Can I tell you, in heaven today, there is no confusion about what Christmas was really all about. Christmas was all about Jesus coming to set up his kingdom in the hearts of those who would believe in him. And it was the precursor of when Jesus was going to come again and finalize his plan for redemption in all of humanity. And friend, you mark it down. Jesus' first coming, it reminds us the fact that Jesus is coming again. And I tell you, he is mighty today. One of the reasons we celebrate him during this season is because he is mighty and what he will do. And that humble child that was born in Bethlehem's manger will come again, but it will not be in humility. It will be in power and great glory. And he'll come to execute righteousness and judgment upon this earth. 
I'm glad. Oh, I'm thankful for the first advent. But it's the second advent that brings us hope in this messed up world today. And I'm thankful that you and I who have believed in Jesus Christ, we have the hope of the fact that we'll be dwelling with him in that eternal kingdom when he comes again. What a blessed thought that is for us here today. Now, the preacher Martin Lord-Jones, he once said, ultimately, nothing matters but what we think about Jesus. Nothing matters. Listen, I've had all kinds of theological debates, discussions about minor issues in the Scripture, and some people say they believe this about that. Look at, look at a, a definitive point in two different ways. But in the context of eternity, if we bring it down to one thing, nothing else matters in your life but what you think about Jesus. Have you believed in it here today? See, the reason we celebrate this season is not so we can sing Christmas songs, not so we can have time with family, not so we can eat those awesome Christmas treats, okay? Now, that's a close second, but that's not, that's not it. It's Jesus. We ought to take time as God's people to remember that we live in a world that won't. And I think it's important we take time to remember who it is we celebrate during this season. It's Jesus. He's marvelous in how he came. He's majestic in who he is. And he's mighty in what he will do. And we'd be well as God's people not to forget it. We'd do well as God's people to take some time to worship him for how he came. To thank him for that he came to save us. To dwell on him and, and think about who he is in our lives today. You know, if you think about the fact that God's your warrior God, it would make your problems seem a lot less big than what you're making them to be. You spend some time worshiping the Lord during this season, it'll change your perspective in these times that we live in. I want to encourage you as God's people to take time during this season to worship the Lord for who he is.